welcome back to the Neuroaffirming Parent Podcast. It's the show where we explore the wonderful world of neurodiversity affirming parenting and the wonderful lived and learned experiences of neurodiversity within humanity. So just please think of me as your online mom friend that will not judge you. I'm your host, the neuroaffirming parent, and today's episode is going to be a solo one. I'm going to be diving into what it means to me right now to advocate for neurodiversity and neurodiversity affirming practices in this time frame. And why do I feel the need to make this episode? I hopefully you've listened so far to a lot of the episodes that I've put out. Hopefully you like them. Hopefully you commented or connected with me online in some way. I really want this podcast to be almost like an archive of voices in this time frame because I want people to listen at any time in the future and hear where parents like me are coming from uh, in between 2023 and moving into 2024. So to kick things off, I just want to reestablish a foundation. What is neurodiversity? It is the concept that neurological differences such as neurotypes that we call autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia, giftedness, epilepsy, and many others are natural variations of the human brain. It's about recognizing and celebrating the diversity of neurocognitive profiles that exist in our society. Now, you may know already that I identify as a dyslexic and a gifted adult. In simpler terms, a neurodivergent adult. I do not identify as autistic. That's also called allistic. I want to make that distinction clear because anyone can advocate for neurodiversity affirming practices. It's not limited to one neurotype. And it's a idea and a concept that people should not just slap these terms on their bio or use them or misunderstand them. These are powerful practices that are helpful and we don't want them to be misused so that they can be used to hurt people because before neurodiversity, it did exist. We do currently live in a neurodiverse world. Even before the term neurodiversity or neurobiological brain differences existed, we knew about neuroscience. We knew about neurons. We knew about nervous systems. It existed. And we want to support everyone who lives under this umbrella term of neurodiversity, including neurodivergent people that are people with ADHD. These are my family members. These are my loved ones I'm talking about. And one key aspect I'm finding is that a lot of people isn't just misunderstanding the differences between the old paradigm, which could be the medical model, or how people used to advocate for these certain neurotypes in the past, and going forward what neurodiversity affirming paradigm shift looks like. 
And one of the best documents of that is going to be the work of Jim Sinclair, Don't, Don't Mourn for Us. And Jim Sinclair is an autistic adults rights activist. They published an essay and spoke about Don't Mourn for Us in 1993. This has influenced and is the founding document for the neurodiversity movement since its publication. The essay stands out because it is radical when considered in the context of other autistic writings from the time period of 1980 to 1990. So there are other autistic advocates that you might have heard of like Temple Grandin or Donna Williams and a lot of Main Street audiences listen to them but the difference between Jim Sinclair's work Temple Grandin and Donna Williams' work is that Jim Sinclair was the first person to shift this paradigm and start talking about autonomy and self-advocacy. And their works talk about positioning autism outside of the previous ableist ideas. And the problem with I would argue mental health, which people can still say mental illness, and this whole issue with the medical model is there are a lot of historically people that have called themselves experts that did not have the neurotype that they were talking about, or they were parents and didn't know about the hereditary aspect of neurodiversity and were talking about their child's neurotype. These are people that are talking about learned experiences and treating them as a lived experience of their own. And that's the problem. Because Sinclair was the person who was very familiar with a parent-centric autism culture. Their work upended those notions. It challenged the notion that parental grief was the inevitable result of autism. That's not true. So Sinclair is the one we have to credit with playing a major role in establishing the intellectual and cultural foundations for neurodiversity. Where do I get this information from? It's the wonderful author Sarah, I'm going to butcher this name, but Prepus Kaput. It's an article called Historicizing Jim Sinclair's Don't Mourn for Us, A Cultural and Intellectual History of Neurodiversity's First Manifesto. And I I need to get the full book. It's from, I have a Springer link I'm going to put in the show notes because everybody needs to read this article. It is wonderful and explains fully why we need to thank the work of Jim Sinclair. Now moving on. So when it comes to that previous paradigm shift, when we talk about ableism, what do we mean? When we talk about ableism, it's assuming that somebody is able to do something because of what we see from our perspective. When you project those expectations onto somebody else and you don't consider with empathy that they might not feel good that day. They might not want to do what you expect them to participate in that day. You have to consider the person entirely or holistically from their own perspective. And that's why I think one of the key aspects of advocating for neurodiversity affirming practices is rejecting harmful approaches like ableism and behaviorism and 
functioning labels. So let's break down behaviorism first. Behaviorism is from the 1900s. It was intentionally developed to reduce individuals to a set of behaviors to be modified, often neglecting the underlying needs and experiences of neurodivergent people. So a wonderful article I'm also going to link in the show notes is from neuroclastic.com. The article is called Behaviorism is Dead, How Do We Tell the Autism Parents? And the author is Carol Millman. And I highly recommend this article because it breaks down the paradigm shift from parents rightfully so feeling lost when you get the diagnosis of a certain neurotype really our society doesn't support people to first know what that neurotype is usually there's a lot of misinformation there's a lot of myths there's a lot of information that is not helpful that you have to sift through and then there aren't a lot of trusted resources available that you can just click go to and find what you need There's a lot of people trying to exploit parents that are lost, that are trying to make money off of parents that are lost. And so I love this title that says, like, only an ancient science can save your child, or so they tell us. Because behaviorism is, you can almost say ancient, and I hate to say that because (laughs) I'm just 30. Well, I just turned 31, and I don't feel like I'm that old, but... 1900 was a long time ago. It's over 100 years ago. So when we know better, we should do better. And why aren't we? And the article even breaks this down. It says, like, usually as soon as an autistic child is diagnosed, doctors bombard the parents with frightening forecasts and gloomy outlooks. And the only thing that can save their child uh, from a lifetime of friendlessness and unemployment is, oh, the gold standard for autism treatment behaviorism totally not true and the problem i think is that it's i see the simulator and overlap in dyslexia because what do we have before we finally had neuroscience tell us that structured literacy is the gold standard for not just dyslexia but teaching all kids to read but people would say whole language and so i see a lot of similarities with behaviorism and whole language because once you debunk whole language they don't go away. They rebrand and they come back as balanced literacy. So when behaviorism got debunked and by, hopefully by, um, if you look at the history, social cognitive learning theory, it got rebranded as ABA or applied behavior analysis therapy. And now that ABA is starting to get debunked and you can see balanced literacy is getting debunked. They're trying to rebrand balanced literacy as rebalanced literacy and I see ABA now rebranded as new ABA or modern ABA or I've even seen it called like uh, like behavior analytics or behavior interventions or it's also called intensive behavioral intervention or just behavioral intervention either way it's commonly touted as the only effective science-based treatment for autism which is not true and We need doctors to understand this. We need pediatricians to understand this. We need educators to understand this. But most of all, parents need to understand this. 
because the only study that they have in their back pocket for ABA is a five-year study that showed a slight increase in IQ points, which means virtually nothing. And also IQ is debatable. And really, I love this article so much because it goes deep into it. (sighs) Behaviorism did change how people looked at things. But if you go into the history of disability and how people are treated, it wasn't always for the best. It was more of a idea of, oh, this could cost you less money because if you do these therapies and interventions, you don't have to lock them up in a hospital forever. And so that's not exactly affirming. And it's funny because just like in structured literacy, we have five pillars of structured literacy. And it talks about phonemic awareness and phonics and fluency and comprehension. And that is how you create a good reader, which is funny because what do you have in research methods from the American psychologist? Five pillars of integration, which is biological, cognitive, developmental, social and personality, mental, physical health. And the cross-cutting themes are ethics, application, variations, and cultural. And I love the author of this neuroclastic article because they say, notice behaviorism is not there. Psychology doesn't consider behaviorism relevant in contemporary practice and research. And so it's interesting because you don't see that on Instagram. You don't see that on social media. Unfortunately, in social media, you see a lot of people claiming, oh, we can fix your child. Oh, do this brain training. Oh, do this bilateral training. We can fix your child. No, that is not supported by neuroscience. And my problem is that it shouldn't take somebody to be autistic or to experience autism through a family member or a colleague or a student that you care about to learn how harmful ABA is. We can learn from history and even the article of this author says there's a one book from the time period where behaviorism was huge called A Child Called Noah. A father recounts his son's experiences under behaviorism how he was starved, made miserable, and abused with no positive results. And this book is from the 1960s. And so there were people talking about this, and I've even linked before in my stories, and I'll link it in the show notes, but there is a wonderful article um, by Noam Chomsky where even, because the thing is, behaviorism doesn't, correction, behaviorism doesn't stop at one child. The goal is a very business-based practice where, oh, if you can get these autism parents on board, you can get dyslexia parents on board, you can get the ADHD parents on board. Any behavior that you can convince people can be corrected can turn into all children. And that's why you can see behaviorism kind of integrated into speech therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and even classrooms today. If you see a behavior chart, that is behaviorism. And so his ultimate goal was to move behaviorism from just the therapy world into language. And he wanted to rewrite and re-explain how the human mind uh, connects to language because a lot of people historically knew that language and behavior were connected. But ding, 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 that is a whole language fallacy. No, we do not acquire... (sighs) 
language in certain ways that aren't based on science. And so that's where Noam Chomsky came in because at that time in the 60s, like he was the forefront for language development and linguistics. And he is the first one to write a full article debunking behaviorism. And even in the science world, that article is kind of hailed as a historical document showing why that doesn't work. Now, there are people that don't like Chomsky that, you know, refute his claims as well. But I think historically, it's important to point out that no, behaviorism has not always been considered the gold standard. And why we tout it today as the best way when that has clearly not been identified historically is beyond me. But to go further, behaviorism was old news by the 1960s. And I love this article because it even goes further into it. And it's really just because behaviorism was viewed as too simple. It was too structured. It was too rigid. And what I love they point out is the Dunning-Kruger effect. And it says, even considering the number of RBTs and BCBAs, which are behavioral therapists who have tried to convince this author that AB science is real, but have no familiarity with any other branches of science, the author believes that the Dunning-Kruger effect likely applies to at least some of them. And so really what the effect says is that incompetent people think that they are very competent while competent people think they are not especially competent. And I feel this way and it applies to parenting and especially neurodivergent parents and neurodiversity affirming parents because a lot of us, even if you have a master's degree or a uh, like a bachelor's degree, there I've talked to so many people on this podcast so far and we are highly intelligent parents. Now, do I have a degree? No, there's several reasons for that. But do I feel like I am competent? No, not all the time. And I'm perfectly okay saying that. I'm sure you read in my about me or my bio that I am not an expert. I am not a guru. I'm not trying to sit here and tell you that I know everything in the world. And one of my dyslexic strengths is that if I don't know something, I will help you or I will go out of my way to try and find a resource to help educate you on what you're trying to learn about. And I've never felt confident, and it's probably imposter syndrome too, but I've never felt confident enough to be like, oh, I know everything about this. And I, to, even to this day with parenting, I'll tell people, listen, I can tell you what worked for me, but I don't know it will work for you. That is up for you to decide. Because a lot of things in life to me are very subjective more than objective. And that was the difference I saw in IEP demanding in school. And I know some people might not agree with me because I even had, I talked to a parent and they kind of thought that I was just scared of saying the word autistic for my daughter. And that's not true. If like my, if we have my daughter and she didn't hit her milestones and you know, my little baby app told me, hey, you need to check this out at the doctor. Or, you know, if I took it to the pediatrician and we screened her and the pediatrician says, hey, we should get her evaluated for autism, I would be perfectly okay with that. I would have no issue. My issue was that we had no documentation and her school took one look at her and said, oh, autism. 
And everything I found online said that's not how it's supposed to work. Even when I went to the pediatrician, they said, sorry, you'd have to pass a screener first and then go see a specialist out of town to get the autism assessment. And I think that's where a lot of confusion online happens because I'm happy for adults that take a screener and feel vindicated for self-identifying as autism later in life. For children, I don't think that's as equitable or ethical because my daughter doesn't know her behavior from anything outside of her own perspective. She is her own person. She doesn't know what these labels mean. Now, we have gone out of our way to identify it as dyslexia and I want to empower her, but I'm not going to force her to use a label that she doesn't feel comfortable with ever. Like even later down the road, if she listens to my podcast and she's like, hey mom, I don't really identify with being neurodivergent. I don't really care about neurodiversity. I'll be fine with it. And I have no connection to that. I've completely, I'm not saying I'm better than anybody, but I, I saw my parents get their ego too tied to me growing up and they really just wanted me to be a clone of either of them. And they didn't appreciate me as an individual person. So I refused to not appreciate my child as an individual. So that's why I feel so strongly about behaviorism because when we were in school fighting for my daughter's education, we did not feel competent. And we assumed that everybody else in the room was. And the only person that did feel competent was the BCBA. And when I say that the school's had an implicit bias to label my child as autistic for financial reasons isn't just because of a conspiracy or that's how I feel. I, thank you dyslexic thinking, looked it up. You can look up certain public figures and see what their wages are and you have as a parent the power to get the information of the people that are working with your child to get their credentials and her credentials were paid for by the school. So there was a conflict of interest there. And before she was a BCBA, she was a RTI uh, specialist. And to define that for you, RTI is response to intervention. And it's an education strategy used in schools and it's based in behaviorism. And so everything was based around what they wanted to label my child as financially to help themselves. And even when we did all the goals that were aligned with autism, it didn't help my daughter. Her progress reports went down. She was not learning in the school. She was only learning at home. And unfortunately that happened in virtual school as well, where we saw that she wasn't learning at school. And so that's why we homeschool now. So why should you even listen to me? I don't want you to, honestly. I want you to take my words and if they offend you, great. Look up my resources, read them directly. If you like what I'm saying, great. Take my resources, read them directly. I don't want to speak over any actually hashtag autistic adult voice on this topic. The only way I can speak on this is on behalf of my daughter from what I saw. Her experience is her lived experience. What I witnessed is a learned experience that this BCBA, correction, BCBA was not fully trained. They did not understand neurodiversity. They did not understand dyslexia and they wanted to apply 
behaviorism in every way to my daughter and that's not how it works and so I really love this article because this person is a dog trainer today and there's overlaps with behaviorism and animal training and in a lot of ways animal training has embraced more affirming practices versus behaviorism in humans and Even the scientific methods of ABA are out of date, and this article outlines why, but I just urge parents to read it in full. Another resource I'm going to recommend that you read, because I had even an autistic parent reach out to me and tell me how they loved ABA, and they saw how their child loved it, and they were having so much fun, and they didn't understand why all these people said that it was harmful and that maybe we should check out new ABA. And so I want to direct you to a website called AutisticSciencePerson.com. They also are on Instagram. And they have an article called Why ABA Therapy is Harmful to Autistic People. And I'd argue they can expand this article to everyone. And they break it down really well. So before neurodiversity, how individuals viewed any type of behavior in a human is either good or bad. So if you were deemed bad or the tragedy narrative, you got told something like this, like, ooh, like the parents might be grieving for not having a normal child, or the parents might talk about the child challenging behaviors, or they might label everything as a tantrum, or somebody might tell a parent, don't give in, it's manipulation. Or, you know, you put children in time out for refusing to do a task. Or you withhold a child's needs and wants to make them speak verbally, make them have eye contact, make them sit still, make them stop stimming, limit and disallow sensory supports. So what's the flip side of this? Neurodiversity narrative. Where you realize everybody has different expectations. Emotional dysregulation needs support. Meltdowns need sensory supports and time. That the individual wants something for a reason. That we can figure out why they cannot do a task. We ask why. We learn about alternative communication, which includes AAC, or Alternative Augmentative Communication. Or we use sign language, or typing or writing, text-to-speech, speech-to-text, pointing at pictures... We learn about sensory supports, headphones, ear defenders, earplugs, sunglasses, tinted glasses, weighted blankets, compression vests, sensory toys. So what a lot of people don't realize, and I love the author of this article, is that ABA teaches children to hide their pain, especially sensory pain. It increases the likelihood of post-traumatic stress disorder and can lead to suicide. And the reason I mention that is because I personally feel like the overlap between PTSD and suicidality in neurodivergent people can also relate to EDS, um, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, or also known as hyperflexibility or hypermobility, because there's a lot of overlapping disorders when it comes to, and I don't say disorder to be an ableist term, I mean in the medical term sense, but a lot of these conditions overlap 
And when you don't get a proper diagnosis because certain doctors are not aware of how to screen or don't know of these diagnoses, you can have sensory issues that look irrational, but they are very rational to the person themselves. And that's why it's so important to believe that person. And I relate this to fibromyalgia because my aunt, before she passed, she was diagnosed only after several years where she would tell the doctor that her she was in pain all the time. She would feel pain everywhere. And I remember there was like a famous Dr. House TV show episode where the doctor was like, ha ha ha, well, it's probably your finger because everywhere you point hurts. But that's not true. Like we do have pains and we, I would argue, I mean, Listen, there's so much misinformation in this world when it comes to climate change, pollution, heat, the weather. We don't always know, even with stress and trauma, we don't always know the cause of the physical pain. But what is the point of invalidating somebody when they tell you they are in pain? And that's why I love neurodiversity because it's more about asking why. What is the background? What happened? And it's less about looking for a solution or a quick fix as to a problem. So that's why I love this article because it breaks down what trauma is, what it can look like, and it explains that ABA therapy does not acknowledge the why to behavior, that sensory sensitivities are real and painful, so ABA denies this desensitizing a child does not work it's a physiological part of the nervous system and it really goes into detail of what does the research say and research today shows that ABA is unethical ineffective and even harmful and I know a lot of these are hard to hear they're hard to talk about Um, Because a lot of people say, hey, what about self-injurious behaviors like headbanging? And, you know, my family does not have a diagnosis of autism. But what's interesting is even when my grandmother, the later she got in life, because she she lived with us for a short time um, when I was younger, which was like the early 90s. But she wasn't diagnosed with Alzheimer's until like 98. But I remember a time that she got so mad at my mom that she started banging her head against the wall. And I asked my mom what was going on, and my mom just said, hey, I mean, she does that. It's okay. Like, sorry you had to see that, but it's okay. And my sister, when she was a child, she would headbang to self-soothe. And even both my kids, they would do it for a point to self-soothe. And whenever I Googled it and looked it up, it never was exactly described as a stim, but it was something about the headbanging that was self-soothing. And I know that's hard to hear because... There is a lot of, you know, it's hard to look at somebody who is maybe scratching themselves or hitting themselves or harming themselves, but that's why neurodiversity asks why. And challenging behaviors are still a form of expression and they can be attempt to heal psychological pain or other pain going on. And any treatments recommended by a functional behavioral analysis can also be considered unreliable because the assessment of FBA is actually unscientific. 
And so that's why I love this article because it goes deep into it because it talks about how it's related to stress and anxiety and painful sensor hyper sensory hyperactivity and it can be a reaction to being forced to engage in eye contact or forced to do something else that is sensory uncomfortable and it causes discomfort for them so that's why I harp again it's important to ask why or look at the environment and see hmm what in this environment is causing this behavior to happen and how can we support not fix and so the article also go- further goes into what do autistic people who have been through ABA therapy have to say? And I highly recommend that people follow hashtag say no to ABA on social media and you'll see firsthand accounts of what people say. And, you know, not everybody's going to be the same. Not everybody's going to have the same opinion. That's why diversity is wonderful. But we really need to listen because if one person is harmed, that is too many. And I love this chart that this author made because it really breaks down why some people believe that ABA is harmful and why others don't. So they titled it The Perpetual Traumatizing and Gaslighting of Autistic Experiences of ABA. So first off, the person who thinks ABA therapy is good says, oh no, it's different now. That was the old ABA. This one is good. And so usually they put their autistic child into ABA therapy or they know somebody who did and the child does not have agency. The child is manipulated to do tasks for rewards. The parent perceives the child as doing better and being obedient. Then the child starts struggling due to ABA therapists pushing them to do things and hurt them, not meeting the needs of the child. The child eventually learns to mask because they know the consequences are worse if they do not as they won't get rewards or will be ignored. They may even seem happy. The child grows up, finally has autonomy in their life, likely still masks. And the adult now finds out that ABA is still being promoted as helping people with autism. So the autistic adult talks about their traumatic experience they had in ABA, hoping people will listen. And I can relate that to the gifted education because when I was in gifted, I didn't see how talking about the negative effects would help me. My only goal was to get out of education entirely. And I thought once I graduated, I wouldn't have to deal with any of that again. It totally left my mind that as a parent, yes, you do go through education again, just in a different way. And that's where you see this hashtag gifted kid burnout. Because once you're an adult and you distance yourself further enough from that educational situation or you could argue a traumatic situation, you start to see things differently. And I would argue age is a factor in that as well. You And honestly, autonomy is a huge factor as well. Because I'm sure I'd probably see it differently if I left school, went to school and became a teacher and became like a gifted teacher. And if I never stepped outside of that world, I probably wouldn't see it the same way that I do now. And even probably I wouldn't see it the same way if I didn't have children. Because I know there are a lot of gifted adults that will say that they don't like inclusion or they think inclusion is bad because they only relate their own experience. And they don't understand parents today that are fighting for inclusion. And that 
doesn't exclude gifted kids and how gifted kids deserve inclusion as well. So it's multifaceted, but I highly recommend that article. And then let's talk about functioning labels because I've recently talked to a parent and I don't want to be mean and I don't want to belittle and I don't want to put off people. I know with my dyslexia, I can sometimes come off caustic or blunt or strong. And I'm, I try to be self-aware of that, but sometimes I can't always help it. But when people say that they like functioning labels, it bothers me because I've listened to enough autistic adults tell me how harmful they have been to them. And then when I see the research of dyslexia and I see how they talk about severe dyslexia or mild dyslexia, and it's not true. And the best term I can use to describe the multifaceted area of what it actually is, is from the gifted world, which is called asynchrony, which means, yes, you might have a really good day where you feel like you can function. And then the next day, you might feel like you can't function at all. That happens with depression. That happens with anxiety. That happens with almost, I would argue, every neurotype. Because you're going to have some good days. You're going to have some bad days. But every day, you deserve accommodations and modifications and support. Unconditional support. And it shouldn't be limited to a diagnosis. If you ask for help, you should be able to receive help or know how to access that help. So an article I'm going to link is by the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. And it's from 2021. And it's titled, Functioning Labels Harm Autistic People. And it says, December 6th, a group of autism researchers commissioned by The Lancet released a report on the future of autism services and research. The report primarily deals with the need for better services and research for autistic people. Yay. And it talks about including individualized services as well and research that prioritizes quality of life. Unfortunately, media coverage of this report focused on brief recommendation to create an administrative classification called profound autism. And articles and report have focused on this recommendation and some up to argue it that profound autism should be separate diagnosis. And I'll stop there to talk about how labels hurt and how sometimes labels can help. So let's talk about profound autism. Number one, how are you going to explain that to people? And number two, like, what does that mean? Um, I can tell you what it means for me is it reminds me of profound giftedness. And what it sounds like is you exclude a group of people and you just say, oh, well, they can't be helped. Because, and that's why I love the work of Deborah Ruff, because she breaks down giftedness and neutral labels of levels to help parents understand where their child is at and how to assist their child not to belittle or almost not to inf- what's the full word infantilize <laughs> but to support your child and the flip of that is giftedness in school usually excludes like about two levels of giftedness because in in gifted education you have to reach a 99 percentile and there are some qualified gifted people that have gifted traits as the neurotype with Dabrowski's overexcitabilities and asynchrony that 
fit in the general education model and not all of them will be properly served in a gifted education model, which is number one, why we need inclusive education. But when you have a, I would argue my dad's probably profoundly gifted, but he and like other profoundly gifted people, if you are not a white male or a prodigy from your childhood and you don't know what you want to do in life. And if you have a, also another, if you're two E or twice exceptional and you're also dyslexic or autistic or any other neurotype, you don't get served properly in the education system, in the medical system, or even the social system. And you get treated as an outlier. And people put you in this other category and they act as if they don't have to take care of you or care about you. And so that's my personal opinion about labels. And it's just, it's exclusive. It's not inclusive, it's exclusive. And so this is when we need to listen to disability advocates as well. Because, you know, autistic people also have overlapping traits and there's people with Down syndrome and cerebral palsy and there's a wide range of abilities of supports and needs. It's a spectrum. And you might be low functioning one day and you might be high functioning the next. Does that mean that you need all the same supports on every day? No. Now, people would argue that's equality, but is that equity? No. Which is why we need to fight for not just diversity awareness and inclusivity awareness, but equity awareness. And so that leads me to, I really want to focus on reminding people that relying on these old paradigms or relying on ableism, behaviorism, or functioning labels, it's not helpful. We should focus on the evidence-based practices that are supported by neuroscience. Because the previous approaches were built on a foundation of understanding of how the previous world that's dead and gone by now thought the brain function. We know better now. We do better. We have images of the human brain. We know how the brain functions and how neurodivergent individuals can thrive. You know how? We listen to them. They tell us. We have social media. They can post. They can make videos. They can write books. Not me. Don't don't expect me to be able to do all that. This podcast is like the limit of my abilities. But When you look at interventions and therapies that are backed by scientific research, that is what should guide us. And that's what we should tell parents and give parents access to. And so just to roundabout go back, I really want to not rip off advocates of the past. I want to embellish, amplify, and draw people back to adult autistic rights advocates like Jim Sinclair. I'd even argue mad movement activists like Elizabeth Packard. And it's because historically advocacy has been instrumental in promoting acceptance, understanding, and support for not just one neurotype, but all human individuals. And it's a reminder that voices and perspectives from humans, even in the past, are valuable in shaping our current paradigm for parenting, for education, for the medical world, for even the legal world, and going forward. So, 
Now we talked about all the things that I don't always agree with, but what do I agree with? What does it look like to practice neurodiversity affirming practices? And I'm going to put in the show notes, therapistndc.org. And this is Therapist Neurodiversity Collective. And they were established January of 2018. And I don't think it says their country where it's originally from, but I'm sure you can dive into it and check it out. But what do I love about it? I love that they have a lot of resources in one beautiful little place and they have a therapy menu um, that talks about neurodiversity affirming therapy and they have non-ableist pragmatic language therapy they have advocacy menu they have an education menu for educational resources and they even offer neurodiversity training and why is that even important? I've seen, unfortunately, online, a lot of people pop up and be like, oh, don't you want to take this neurodiversity training? Well, the truth is anybody can call themselves neurodiversity affirming. You really have to look at their, ironically, behavior to see and their actions to see if it matches what they're saying. And so ultimately, when it comes to education, what should you look for? So that's why I really like their page that focuses on therapist, neurodiversity collectives, ethic values. And I'd argue we could expand this to what to look for in a truly neurodiversity affirming practice. And that comes to parents, educators, therapists, medical, legal, all the realms. But you wanna see somebody that advocates for disability rights and civil rights or human rights. You wanna advocate for equitable inclusion, unrestricted access to supports, modifications, and accommodations. You want to look for ethical billers and ethical sellers. Um, You wanna look for therapy that's respectful of neurotypes or neurodivergence, differences and sensory processing differences. You want to presume competence and respect personal agency. You want to see somebody who's applying a strength-based approach. And they are probably unapologetic in their opposition to ABA, including positive supports or positive reinforcement, also known as PBS or PBIS. You want to look for somebody who's humane, trauma-informed. And if they talk about feeding, they might know about all the different realms of that. And I'd argue that probably includes fed is best. Uh, you also want to look out somebody, I would say this probably differs for certain neurotypes, but I would say language inclusive. And that means AAC, which we talked about earlier, or sign language, or pretty much anybody that sees all communication as valid communication. And you want them to respect body autonomy. You don't want to see seclusion or restraint and you don't want them to act as social skills trainers or social skills interventionists and you want them to practice with cognizance of potentially harmful effects of certain social skills programs and you want them to honor and uphold the dignity and humanity of every client student or patient 
that they serve. And why are these so important? It's because we, we've heard and we see and we know that not everybody is affirming. If you go to a school and they say, hey, we love behaviorism or yes, we support ABA, that's usually a red flag. If they start saying, oh, a person with autism or a person with ASD or a person on the spectrum or a person with Asperger's or a person with high functioning. Now, they might not yet know better, but if they know about neurodiversity and they're still using person first language that's not preferred by the person they're talking about, red flag. If their employment has certain behavior therapists like BAC based, correction, BACB certification, a registered behavior technician or RBT, a board certified behavioral analyst or BCBA, or applied behavioral analyst, ABA. My question too is like, why are there so many terms? Because any other job I know, you can't have that many terms unless you're trying to hide something. Uh, but also you wanna look and see about their goals. If their goals are focused on eliminating a behavior or they focus on compliance training, red flag. If you see something say autism training or dyslexia training or, oh, we can train your kid to pass the gifted test, red flag. If you see social skills training, like social skills groups, program for education and enrichment, social thinking, video modeling, peer mentoring, assigned friends. There's even, I, you know, I've, I'd argue, I've seen some things used as social stories and they're not always bad, but if they use social stories with expected social skill behavior to imitate, red flag. And also on this website, they post some really good information about what a good neurodiversity therapist looks like. And I know we talked about that a little earlier, but if you want more information, that website has it. Um, another thing is, and I'm not a therapist by any means, I don't work in the medical field, but I think it's important for parents to know that there's a difference between a compliance model and autonomy and connection model. And that website goes deep into it. So please check out the show notes because they're gonna be in there. I'm gonna include that for you because I really want this episode to not be doom and gloom. I want you to leave feeling more empowered to do more research on your own, learn a lot about what you're looking for, or maybe you'll feel validated for the choices that you've already made. Because in the medical world and the education world and legal world and all these different worlds, we do see different languages, right? And how to advocate for one world in educational field is different than in the medical world. And there's certain guidelines that healthcare providers have to follow. They have to understand, they have to respect. And the thing is, neurodiversity fits in every single one of those worlds. Everybody can learn about neurodiversity and include these practices in their world. So even for the healthcare world, we should push for more informed consent. We should push for more respectful communication and healthcare that values the individuals, not just the diagnosis. So in conclusion, I hope you can take this information today, find the resources in the show notes and use it to learn. And then if you feel comfortable, use it to advocate. But ultimately I want you to feel empowered to see yourself as a neurodiversity affirming individual. And that means 
simply just rejecting harmful practices, embracing evidence-based approaches, valuing the voices of people who are living these experiences. It's about fostering an inclusive and accepting world for all humans, regardless of their specific neurocognitive profile. So thank you. If you've lasted this long, thank you for joining me on this episode. If you found this conversation valuable, please consider subscribing or leaving a review and sharing this podcast with fellow parents and advocates. I honestly believe that together we can create a more neurodiversity affirming world for our children and future generations. But also we have to remember y'all, every child is unique. Strategies that work best for one child may differ to another. We gotta be willing to adapt and evolve our approach as we learn more about an individual's needs, strengths, or challenges. Because becoming neuroaffirming is an ongoing journey of learning, empathy, and growth. So I will leave you here. I hope that you start clicking feverishly to <laughs> look up all these resources. But until next time, this is the Neuroaffirming Parent signing off.